The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Black Double Dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you know? It's a Tuesday PFTPM Conference Championship Awards edition. It gets harder and harder to come up with players of the week, coaches of the week, calls of the week, rookies of the week when there's only two games, especially when MDS and I each try to have one each. But we've managed to put it together yet again. We're going to continue to do it. We'll see if we do one after the Super Bowl. We definitely MDS, just so you know now, we're not going to be doing one after the Pro Bowl. So this is it for two weeks, but it's conference championship week. Unless you really, unless you were willing to make a strong case that we should that, do it for the Pro Bowl, that would be amusing. You, you and me sitting on Radio Row uh, next Tuesday in Miami talking about the Pro Bowl, which I'm not sure either of us is even going to watch. We might both be flying to Miami as the Pro Bowl is being played. I don't know. It, it's funny in the uh, in recent years. And, and we've been doing this Radio Row thing for 10 years now. I remember when I first did this, and there was more talk about the Pro Bowl, and there was controversy about whether or not it was actually even going to continue. At one point, Roger Goodell basically said, if the quality doesn't improve, we're not going to do it. There was a Pro Bowl where Peyton Manning basically urged the players to go out and play hard. It's easy for him to say he has special rules where they can't even blitz a quarterback. But I just feel like the spillover, of discussion about the Pro Bowl into Monday and Tuesday of the Super Bowl week experience, it's gotten less and less. Nobody cares. And they still do it because it generates a rating, right? People watch it because it's on TV, Russell Dalrymple, but nobody cares about it. Nobody wants to talk about it into Monday or Tuesday because it really is two-hand touch in full pads. Yeah, it still does do well enough that – there's not a strong reason to cancel it. I mean, it, it doesn't cost a lot of money. As Richard Sherman has pointed out, the players get paid less than they get paid for a regular season game. So it doesn't cost the owners a lot of money to send the players there and have them play the game. It does a decent rating that therefore translates to decent revenue from the corporations that buy commercials during the game. I mean, it makes everybody money. So I don't know that the NFL has a strong reason to get rid of it, but I would agree that I, I think when I first started going to Super Bowls, this will be my 14th, I believe, um, it would always be like a topic of conversation. Like, boy, did you see that Pro Bowl? It really sucked. And now it's not even a topic of conversation because it just goes without saying that the Pro Bowl, the quality of the play is just so poor that it, there's just no point in even pointing that out anymore. Everybody knows it. You know, you see a lot of not tackling to the ground, just holding guys up. And some of that's even spilled over into regular season football where a, a receiver gets wrapped up and the receiver, the defensive back just stand there and they blow the whistle and that's the end of the play. And, you know, that's a theme that may come up over the next couple of weeks because I have a theory as to why the 49ers have been so dominant both offensively and defensively. And it relates to that 
that uh, willingness and ability to go out there and hit like they used to. But let's just jump right into it. The players of the week for the conference championship games. Obviously, if you haven't heard, and really if you haven't heard, where the hell have you been? Chiefs beat the Titans and the 49ers beat the Packers. MDS, who does your award go to? I'm giving my player of the week to Chiefs defensive end Frank Clark, who is the league leader in sacks in the postseason. He has four of them. Uh, effectively clinched the game with a late sack of Ryan Tannehill in the AFC Championship game. And, you know, he got off to a little bit of a slow start when he arrived. At the start of this past season, he was not playing great those first few weeks. And there there was some quick talk of, you know, why did the Chiefs make so much of an effort to get him trade a first-round pick, a second-round pick, give him a huge new contract? Were the Chiefs overspending for him but I think he's starting to show why the Chiefs felt that he was worth that kind of money that kind of draft capital to acquire in that trade with the Seahawks because he's been one of the best defensive players if not the best defensive player in the league this postseason and that was what the Chiefs looked at the Chiefs looked at last year we were real close but our defense let us down in the playoffs this year, we want impact players on our defense, and they got that impact player on their defense. And, you know, I actually tend to be the type to say pouring a first-round pick and a second-round pick and all that cap space into one player is too much. But I got to admit, when it works out, and for the Chiefs, it has absolutely worked out. They wanted a guy who could make an impact in the playoffs, and they got just that. And he made an impact with his mouth the day before the game, talking about Derrick Henry and how he's not unstoppable and he's not that great at breaking tackles. And just a stream of comments to James Palmer of NFL Media that made me think, what the hell are you doing, Frank Clark? Are you getting Derrick Henry riled up? And I think in a roundabout way, that was Frank Clark's way of challenging his teammates to do the things that hurt to do the things that reflect the old-school football mentality. They don't see much anymore. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier with no tackling to the ground in the Pro Bowl and no tackling to the ground at times in regular season games. All of it is a product of no tackling to the ground in practice. Practice has gotten easier and easier for football teams, and I think teams and players have gotten away from that mentality, that mindset that causes them to throw themselves in the path of a locomotive with a rocket up his ass like a Derrick Henry. And I think that Frank Clark, whether he intended this or not, his comments challenged his teammates to be aggressive, to be physical, and to not care that it hurts. It's basic Newtonian physics. When you have a guy who's 6'3 and is getting a full head of steam after those first few steps, because he doesn't accelerate as fast as other running backs, but once he gets going, it hurts to have him crash into you, especially if you're moving in his direction. Then you even get a greater impact than if you're just standing still and he runs into you. So I think that that's what Clark was trying to do. And it worked. And he motivated and inspired his teammates to bottle up Derrick Henry and hold him to 69 rushing yards. And, and that's another reason, unrelated to what he did on the field, that makes him one of the players of the week. Because I think he did light the fuse on the Chiefs' defense to not be intimidated by Derrick Henry. Yeah, and I was a little surprised by his comments because I thought Earl Thomas kind of got burned by making some similar comments the week before about Derrick Henry. And I was also, I wasn't sure I believed it. I did pick the chiefs to win, 
But I still thought Derrick Henry was going to have a big game. He had a very big game against them in the regular season. Uh, I thought the Chiefs' weakness during the regular season was their run defense. But they turned in a really solid effort against Derrick Henry. uh, And when he didn't have big holes, and on a couple plays he had big holes to run through, but when he didn't, they they were taking him down. They were they were the first guy hitting him was if not taking him down at least holding him there and waiting for backup to come. And I thought the Chiefs played exactly the way they're going to need to play against the 49ers. And and to me that that only the way we saw the Chiefs defense play and then the way that we saw the 49ers offense play to me only adds to the intrigue of the Super Bowl, which I I had felt going into the game the two games yesterday, the Chiefs 49ers was probably the the best matchup for a really good Super Bowl. And I actually thought that even more seeing the way the games played out, because I think we're now seeing the Chiefs are very comfortable stopping on defense exactly what the 49ers want to do on offense. Yeah, whether or not they actually can do it is a different issue, because I think that it's a different challenge than stopping Derrick Henry. That acceleration that I talked about, that it takes a few steps for Derrick Henry to get to full speed. Raheem Mostert doesn't need those few steps. He is shot out of a cannon. Tevin Coleman could be back. Matt Breed is hanging around. They've typically liked to use that multi-headed attack with some very complicated blocking that works almost like synchronized swimming to spring holes wide open and guys blow through them and we'll see if the Chiefs can slow that down. And the one thing we know about the Chiefs, well, specifically about the 49ers. If they can do it to the Chiefs, they're not going to stop. They're going to keep doing it. And uh, that's going to be the challenge for the Chiefs. If you start getting blown off the ball early, the Chiefs, uh, the 49ers are going to keep doing it over and over and over again all game long. All right, my player of the week at MDS. And I don't know whether you do this from time to time just to be nice because I always give you first dibs on everything. You've got permanent shotgun on every award we have. You send your four, and then I pick four. And I've never said, have I ever said, give me one of yours? Maybe I did. I can't remember. I'm not looking for brownie points here. I don't think I ever have said I want one of yours. And I think that's because sometimes you leave the good ones for me. Yes, that is correct. There there have been some times when I've thought, I know who you're going to pick. I know you have something to say about it. I'll 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 skip that one and go to my number two choice. And well, I think you're about- the obvious... Yeah, the obvious no-brainer. Now, I thought about Raheem Mostert because I like talking about his story, and it's very inspiring, the idea that he was cut by six different teams, and he eventually just accepted the fact that that's part of life. You own it when rejection happens, and if you love what you do, you just do it, and you don't worry about somebody slamming the door in your face, telling you something you don't want to hear. I thought that is an awesome, awesome story, 220 rushing yards, four touchdowns, that was, I I was going to go that direction. But Patrick Mahomes is operating on a higher level than any quarterback we've seen, especially when it all comes together like it has for him in the postseason. And that guy is just special. Now that he's regained his mobility, he had 446 passing yards against the Titans when he was in his first game back from the dislocated kneecap. He didn't have that many passing yards on Sunday, but the rushing yards are what's uncanny. And that's where the 49ers defense has the biggest challenge because Mahomes has gotten to the point in only his second year as a starter where he senses what's going to be there. And he can tell. And he he moves around enough. And you'll see in the pocket, he never stands still. 
He never gives the defense the ability to lock on to where he is. He's always, even there was a one play where he had like 10 seconds and he constantly was hopping and moving around. He moves around and he can spot whether or not all of the guys who are dropped into coverage are beatable with his feet and he just turns the corner and he goes. And even when they have a spy, this is what the 49ers are going to have to do. We were talking about this today on PFT Live. You can't have a big bulky linebacker as the spy because then Mahomes will do that head fake that he did to Rashawn Evans and leave him in the dust and spring that 27-yard run. And that 27-yard touchdown run, it was a thing of beauty by Mahomes. It was an embarrassment by Tremaine Brock and one of his teammates inside the five. And you really do see which teams are coached to hit quarterbacks like running backs and which teams are afraid of hitting quarterbacks. So they shy away when they have that opportunity to hit them because they think the quarterback's either going to go down or get out of bounds. And they don't want to be a half second too late when a guy decides to slide. But it was beautiful by Mahomes. And it really does give the 49ers something to worry about as they get ready to face that offense. Because if you keep a guy free to chase down Mahomes, that's one fewer guy you have to track down Tyree Kill or Sammy Watkins or Travis Kelsey or Nicole Hardman or Demarcus Robinson or somebody leaking out of the backfield. And Mahomes has got to the point where he is good enough to distinguish between which way that pendulum is going to swing and take full advantage of it. And I think that's going to be a huge problem for the 49ers defense. I'll tell you, I feel very good about the 49ers as a team, but Mahomes is good enough that it really makes me think that he alone could overcome the 49ers with his legs, with his brain, with his arm. Yeah, and, you, you know, the thing that I've really been impressed with these last two weeks is how well he sees the field when he's running. I think we've always known that he sees the field real well when he's throwing the ball, but but he has such a feel for looking at the whole defense and then knowing exactly what his path is going to be when he runs and he'll take a hit if it's if he has to, if it's the last guy between himself and the end zone. But I also think he's pretty smart about not taking as many hits as you might think a quarterback who runs like him would. I mean, I, I think he's actually pretty good at seeing the field and seeing here's where I'm going to get to and then I'm going to step out of bounds. And it's like he knows that before he even takes off running. And, and one of the things that young quarterbacks who are good athletes tend to make a mistake about early in their career is they're quick to run and they haven't fully seen the defense but they just the the first read isn't open so I'm gonna run Mahomes it's like he has completely read where the entire defense is and then he knows exactly where he's running and not just where he needs to run for five yards but for 20 yards or more down the field, he has figured out exactly where the defense is and where he needs to get to. Uh, he he is really, I think, maybe even grown as a quarterback over this these last couple of months since coming back from the knee injury to where, you know, his, his first season as a starter was so in, incredible that it is almost hard to say you could ever improve upon it. But I actually wonder if maybe he's still improving. Maybe he's still getting better as a quarterback. And if that's the case, it's scary for the every defense in the NFL. Yeah, if the ceiling, how can it be any higher than it is? But if it is, watch out. And this year, 
I think because of those injuries, and it goes back to the ankle that he suffered in week one against the Jaguars. That's when he first started to feel limited mobility, and maybe other quarterbacks would have missed three or four weeks of time with that thing. Between the ankle and the knee, uh, when he was back for the Titans game, the first time they played in week 10, there wasn't the same mobility there is now. And that mobility is a key because he's got the arm that can deliver the ball from any angle and any body position, one foot on the ground, two feet on the ground, no feet on the ground, cockeyed feet, whatever the case may be. He can just whip it with the flick of his wrist, a sidearm shot, overhand, underhand, whatever he has to do. Left hand, right hand, doesn't matter. Um, and we had kind of forgotten about him. We'd taken him for granted. We got infatuated with Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson is still going to be a great player, but Lamar Jackson's home. And Patrick Mahomes isn't. And Patrick Mahomes is going to have a chance to take on a great, great 49ers team. It does remind me a lot of Super Bowl 19, where Dan Marino, in his second year as a starter, was taking on a great 49ers team. And we expected a great game, and we didn't get one. And Marino thought he'd be back for more Super Bowls, and he never got back. I think Mahomes' career is going to take a different track than that. Because this guy isn't just a quarterback who throws. He can do it all. He's led the team in rushing the past two games, which doesn't say much for the Chiefs running backs, but it shows what he's capable of doing. And what he's capable of doing is whatever it takes to win. And his brain always knows what his body can do, and his body can do pretty much whatever it has to do to get the football to where it needs to be. Yeah, he's doing uh, things that we don't see quarterbacks do, and it's exciting to think about what a future he may have. Uh, I, Who knows? Maybe he will be Dan Marino, and this is his first and last Super Bowl, but I really don't think that's going to be the case. I think we're going to see that uh, Patrick Mahomes is going to be here many times in the future. All right, Rookie of the Week. Harder to do when there are fewer and fewer rookies. I had to actually go through the rosters of all four teams and make sure there wasn't any rookie I was missing who may have contributed. And I thought about something crazy, something kooky, but I decided to be more conventional. Who did you take? I took Debo Samuel of the 49ers. Now, it, it seems a little funny to pick a wide receiver on a team that only threw the ball eight times the entire game, but he was their leading receiver with two catches for 46 yards. He's also their second leading rusher after Raheem Mostert. He had two carries for 43 yards. And I really like what Kyle Shanahan is doing to get the ball in Debo Samuel's hands. And I won't be surprised if he gets more than two carries and more than 43 rushing yards in the Super Bowl, especially if Tevin Coleman is hurt because they, they want to give Raheem Mostert the ball a lot, but they don't want to have him, you know, 20 carries before halftime, and then he's worn out in the fourth quarter. I, I think they may decide to get Debo Samuel involved in the running game even more. I think we also might see some plays where they give him the look where he's going to take an end around, and that maybe freezes the defense and opens up Raheem Mostert to have more room on a handoff up the middle. I think there are a lot of things that they can do with Debo Samuel, who is really proving himself to be one of these rookies who's who's really peaking in the postseason of his rookie year, and I think that's exciting for the 49ers. It, it is amazing how we have seen the 49ers receivers develop, even though they're not using them now, right? They had eight passes thrown, but with Emmanuel Sanders there, with Debo Samuel developing, and Debo Samuel is the guy who was taken at the top of round two after Nick Bosa, so... 
laying the foundation for a great class that will continue to contribute years into the future, that 4-12 and season, setting the 49ers up to have some significant draft picks, to have some guys who can help a team that maybe wasn't nearly as bad as 4-12 and would indicate, but they now are in a position where they can be dominant. And Debo Samuel, just at some point during the season, like all of a sudden, he's popping. He's getting things done. And you're right, he's very potent in the running game. And the other thing that is important about Debo Samuel and Emmanuel Sanders and George Kittle, none of them is clamoring for the ball. Now, it helps that they're winning with this run-heavy offense that had 42 rushing attempts and eight pass attempts. If you're not winning, that's when people are going to start complaining. But they still buy in, right? Pass catchers want to catch passes, period. If they had traded for Odo Beckham Jr. and they were one of the candidates to get OBJ when he was available last year, do you think Odo Beckham Jr. would happily block and not say anything that would suggest, hey, you know what, maybe we can throw the ball more, even if he was just joking around? I can't imagine Odo Beckham Jr. welcoming the run-heavy approach like Samuel Sanders and Kittle have. So that makes Samuels even more impressive, even more mature. You know, he's at a stage in his career where he's laying the foundation for contract number two. You're not going to get contract number two as a receiver by blocking. You're going to get contract number two by racking up statistics, and he's not thinking about that. He's thinking about getting the Super Bowl win. Yeah, and part of having a championship team is having a team of guys who are happy with their own role, even if it's maybe not what they would prefer to have in a real, in an ideal world. And the the 49ers seem to have a lot of guys like that. A lot of players who understand if, whether it's Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman sharing carries, whether it's receivers blocking, they, they seem to have a lot of players on that 49ers team who are happy to play whatever role the coaching staff tells them is best for the team as a whole. And, and I think that's a very important part of what this 49ers team is all about. And, and you know, the the whole way this team was built with John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, it, it's been kind of interesting to watch it unfold because the two of them always seemed to have more confidence in what they were building than the record justified, right? I mean, they they seemed real confident that they had their team going in the right direction, even though their record stunk the last two years. And this year, we saw that they had every reason to be confident. They were bringing in the right kinds of guys, the building building the team the right way, and it has paid off in year three. Uh, and and you know, a draft pick like Debo Samuel turned out to be one of those finishing touches on a contending roster. And uh, I think you have to give them a lot of credit for the way that they've uh, brought him along and, and made him that, that one of the last pieces in, in a roster that turns out to be maybe the best in the NFL. Yeah. And uh, I, I agree with you completely. And it just creates even more stress for that Chiefs, Chiefs defense, because if they are able to slow down the running game, they, they can do some damage in the passing game if they have to, not if they want to, but if they have to. What I want to do, not that I have to, is call an audible on mine. I was going to go with Nick Bosa, but you know what? Nick Bosa was one of the rookies of the week last week. And even though Nicole Hardman didn't do much statistically, he had one catch for eight yards. He had one punt return for seven yards. He had some decent kick returns, four for 86, average 21.5. But he's getting to the point, MDS, where his presence is a factor. Chris Sims broke down a play earlier today on PFT Live where Mikol Hardman 
did a crossing route, came to the inside, moved Tyree Kill into slot position between Hardman and another receiver on the outside. And Hardman went across, and the safety stayed with Hardman, leaving Tyree Kill one-on-one. So already, and and that was the play where Patrick Mahomes threw the 20-yard laser to Tyree Kill for a touchdown. Already, teams are accounting for the rookie from Georgia, who is every bit as fast as Tyree Kill. And when he was drafted back in April, the thinking was he was the Tyree Kill personal conduct policy suspension insurance policy. Well, no. Now he's just another weapon that they can trot out there who has really come into his own. And I know that GM Brett Veach recently had some high praise of receiver Sammy Watkins, but at a certain point, Watkins becomes a luxury they may not be able to afford. And we always thought Hardman would maybe be the guy who replaces Hill. It could be Hardman is the guy who replaces Watkins. For now, though, and again, we're talking about a thin crop of rookies in the two games that we saw. Nick Bosa has gotten plenty of attention and will continue to get more. But Nicole Hardman, what he can do in all phases of the game and the contributions he can make in the passing game, not just by what he does when the ball's thrown his way, but by attracting attention and opening things up for other guys, more accomplished guys like Tyreek Hill, that gives him uh, a spot where he's worthy of some some praise. And so he gets it today as my rookie of the week. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the chiefs went that way because some teams, when they have a, a Tyree kill, the big play threat with a lot of speed, they then say, well, then let let's, what we need then is the complimentary guy who is uh, a sure handed possession receiver. And the chiefs just said, let's double down on having guys with a lot of speed. And if defenses think, it's hard to cover Tyreek Hill and Sammy Watkins. We'll show them how hard it is to cover Tyreek Hill and Sammy Watkins and Michael Hardman. And it is hard to cover them all. And, and it's going to be very difficult, even for a defense as good as the 49ers, to cover that kind of speed. And Michael Hardman, uh, I'll be surprised if he doesn't make a big play in the Super Bowl, either as a receiver or as a returner. He, he just has that playmaking ability that when the ball is in his hands, good things can happen. And uh, I would expect him to be a pretty big part in, in the Super Bowl for the Chiefs. All right, time for Coach of the Week. Again, not a whole lot of options because there were only two games. MDS, who is your selection for the conference championship round? Yes, very few options, but I'm taking Andy Reid. Uh, certainly deserves a lot of credit for becoming the seventh coach now to reach the Super Bowl with two different teams, having already done it with the Eagles. But I would also just point out what a perfect job he has done developing Patrick Mahomes and building that offense. And I think although Patrick Mahomes has such talent that we're pretty sure he was going to be a good quarterback anywhere, it's also worth remembering that not everyone thought Patrick Mahomes was worth trading two first-round draft picks to go up and get him, but Andy Reid did. Not everyone had a detailed plan for developing Patrick Mahomes that included one year on the bench behind Alex Smith and, and then bringing him along and really building an offense around his strengths. Andy Reid did. So I think you have to give Andy Reid maybe more credit than people are giving him. I, I sometimes get the feeling that people say like, well, anyone could win with Patrick Mahomes. And I, I think that might be shortchanging Reed a little bit. I think he's done a Cliff very Kingsbury good... couldn't. <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. 
They they were never they were never one of the elite teams, Texas Tech, when they had Patrick Mahomes and Cliff Kingsbury as their coach. Yeah, I agree with you. And look, MDS, when we go back to the 2017 draft, one of the brilliant moves made by Andy Reid was to keep quiet about what he thought as it relates to Patrick Mahomes. There is a certain amount of poker face that you need to have because anyone you interact with from another team is going to be looking for any clues. And I think sometimes guys will lack the courage of their convictions and they they say what they think about someone to see how someone reacts because they're not really sure that they should feel that way, right? Uh, Andy Reid didn't feel compelled to do that. And Andy Reid was smart enough to know that somewhere along the line, Sean Payton had to tell because Payton was going to take Patrick Mahomes with the 11th pick in the draft that year. And Reid knew where he had to get to in order to get Mahomes. And he got there to get him. And, you know, I think this coach of the year or coach of the day, coach of the moment consideration hinges in part and comes from the fact that he was able to position himself to get Mahomes and was willing to pull the trigger and move up to number 10 from the low twenties to get there. But uh, yeah, then you have to coach him and then you have to trust him. And now Patrick Mahomes is a finished product where Andy Reid can just let him go out there and say, have at it, do what you want. And he trusts him to do the right things and make the right moves. And, you know, the bears take a lot of crap for trading up to get Mitchell Trubisky number three to number two in the 2017 draft. Well, the 49ers took Solomon Thomas with the third overall pick. They could have had Patrick Mahomes. And can you imagine where they would be right now if Patrick Mahomes was their quarterback? So, uh, and that, that, that's a story. That's one of those Super Bowl week stories that isn't going to get discussed much because the 49ers have been fine without Mahomes, but they'd be better than fine if they had Mahomes. Yes, they would. And, and you know, that shows that, not everybody understood how good Patrick Mahomes is. The Bears obviously didn't. The 49ers obviously didn't. The Chiefs did. The Saints did. And and you mentioned, you know, Sean Payton. Let's not forget, Marshawn Lattimore won Defensive Rookie of the Year with the, the player the Saints picked with their first-round pick. That same rookie year, Patrick Mahomes didn't play except in Week 17. After that year, Sean Payton said... Yeah, we would have taken Patrick Mahomes if he had been there. Now, the easy thing for Sean Payton to have said at that point would have been, oh, we knew all along how great Marshawn Lattimore was. You know, we're, we're not surprised he's defensive rookie of the year. We loved him. We were going to take him. Sean Payton was still saying, yeah, we would have taken Mahomes if he had been there. So that that should tell you a lot about how much Sean Payton loved Patrick Mahomes, that he was willing to say that even when it would have been really easy for him to be like, hey, I drafted the defensive rookie of the year everybody credit how brilliant I was but he was still acknowledging that Mahomes was the one who got away so there are some smart offensive minds in the NFL and Andy Reid and Sean Payton are two of them who saw the talent Patrick Mahomes has there are also some teams like the Bears like the 49ers who say say anything else about them uh, they dropped the ball there because Patrick Mahomes is not a player you should pass on. And they saw that he had generational talent. We hear that term get thrown around a lot, and usually guys like that, the word gets out, and they are taken at the top of the draft. Mahomes, one of the rare who made it all the way down to the 10th spot. Remember that game against the Bears where he scored the touchdown and he started counting off 10 fingers, and he said he was just kind of having some fun. But 
He knows he should have gone higher than that, and he would have gotten paid accordingly, and he is going to get paid accordingly, and he's going to get paid a contract bigger than anyone has ever gotten as soon as this season is over and they start talking about what it's going to take to get him extended well into the future with the Chiefs. All right, my coach of the week, and, you know, I, I, I want to do something a little different. It's easy to say Kyle Shanahan, but I'm going to go one level up on the Shanahan family tree. I'm going to give Mike Shanahan some love here, especially because last week, when Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cowher get into the Hall of Fame with this 15-member centennial class where they threw the usual selection rules out the window, and that just bothers me because it got Paul Tagliabue in when he had failed multiple times when he was a finalist, and all he needed was that the spot was there, right? They had opened the spot for the bust. It's there. Just drop it in, and they still did not vote him in. They found a way to get him in. I feel like that entire class has a layer of taint on it. But the fact that Mike Shanahan isn't in when you consider that Cower and Johnson are in, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be. I'm just saying if they're in, he should be in. I think we need to have a greater appreciation of what Shanahan did as a head coach and how well he did it. And, you know, he gets caught up in that dysfunction in D.C. that maybe it wasn't as obvious as the Cleveland dysfunction at the time Mike Shanahan went there. But a lot of what went wrong during his time in Washington gets you know, stuck to him where it may maybe shouldn't be. Uh, look, he did a hell of a job. And this gets into the whole nepotism debate. And you got into it with Albert Breer a little bit on Twitter. And I agree with your point. Nepotism opened the door for Kyle Shanahan, but it's what you do with it, right? And it's how you were taught. And, you know, the apple didn't fall, 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 fall from the tree here. Mike Shanahan taught Kyle Shanahan what he needs to know to be not just a good coach, but to be one of the best coaches in the NFL. And he's just 40 years old. He's going to be doing this for 30 more years or longer if he wants to. And I think Mike Shanahan deserves some credit for what he did as a coach and how he groomed Kyle Shanahan to get to the point where he is exactly what we thought he was going to be. When when he did what he did with the Falcons offense in only his second year as coordinator, I think it became abundantly clear that this guy is going to be a very good head coach then there were some concerns. Maybe they're giving him too much power. He got to handpick his GM. And John Lynch, well, what does he really know about being a GM? It was the whole John Elway, Matt Millen conundrum. Shanahan's done a hell of a job. And what he's done, and this is the point I was kind of getting at earlier as it relates to the Chiefs and their willingness to go tackle Derrick Henry. Kyle Shanahan, working with John Lynch, has accumulated a collection of badass roughnecks who will go out there and block and tackle and hit even when they don't practice blocking and tackling and hitting like they used to. They don't need to practice tackling in the ground to know how to tackle to the ground. And that is a huge advantage because there are a lot of football players who don't want that discomfort, that physical discomfort that comes from throwing your body into someone else's. And if you're not practicing it, you don't mentally embrace it the way that you ordinarily would. If you're out there doing it all the time, all the time, you lose that, but it hurts. I really don't want to do it attitude. Kyle Shanahan, working with Lynch, has a group of guys who, and the way Chris Sims explains it, they go zero to 60 instantly. They, they execute their assignments without hesitation. They, they rush into what it is that they're supposed to do when the ball snaps. And I think that he has found that. It's, you know, the scheme is great, but he's found out how to spot guys who will go run through a wall without having to be told twice to run through a wall or without having to practice running through a wall. Well, let me say something about the importance of Mike Shanahan to the sport of football that I think sometimes gets overlooked. And that is, 
you know, the Super Bowl has only grown in its significance across America over the last 30, 40 years. It, it was always the number one most watched television event of the year in the 1980s and 1990s. But it was the most watched by, you know, maybe 10 or 20 million over like the Academy Awards or whatever else would be, uh, you know, in an Olympic year, maybe a big Olympic event. It, it was the number one by, say, 10 or 20 million viewers. Now it's the number one by 50, 60, 70 million viewers over anything else. And I think what really shifted to make the Super Bowl the the even bigger event that it is in the 21st century than it was in the late 20th century is that now the Super Bowl is almost always a, a good competitive game. And in the 80s and 90s, it always stunk because the NFC always blew out the AFC. And it was Mike Shanahan and the Broncos upsetting the Packers that finally shifted that narrative and got rid of that hole. The AFC can never win the Super Bowl. The NFC Championship game is the real Super Bowl. Mike Shanahan's Broncos beating the Packers was what changed that. And I think Mike Shanahan doesn't get enough credit for how much that Broncos team shifted the whole power of the NFL because for so long, the AFC was treated as the second banana to the NFC that until Shanahan's Broncos came along, it the Super Bowl did feel like an anti-climax to the NFC Championship game. And so that was an accomplishment that Mike Shanahan had as a coach that I don't think he gets enough credit for. Yeah, you know, and that's a good point. And I don't know, I don't know why he doesn't get more credit. You know, there's the perception that he was plugged into a team that was built before he got there. There was the whole, and it was real. It wasn't reported on the way it would be today because the internet hadn't matured to the point where it now is. It's hard to use internet and mature in the same sentence, but the, the salary cap violations that they ultimately had multiple penalties for to hold that team together. But, you know, it worked and he got it done and he won two Super Bowls and he was a good coach. He was an effective coach before that. He was the offensive coordinator of the 94 49ers team that won the Super Bowl. And, you know, I think being around Mike helped Kyle Shanahan become who he is. We hear all the time about Patrick Mahomes being in a baseball clubhouse when he was a kid. So he's not in awe of any of this. I think Kyle is not in awe of any of this and never has been because he was around it his whole life. So, you know, again, whatever you think about nepotism in football doesn't matter. It's here to stay. And it does give a guy his opening, but what you do with it is up to you. And I think what Kyle Shanahan has done with his opening has a lot to do with what he learned by watching Mike and by the guidance and the tutelage. So we're giving Mike Shanahan, at least I am, the Coach of the Week award because Kyle Shanahan's going to have plenty of them. And uh, if he wins in his first Super Bowl as a head coach, he may be on his way to getting to the Hall of Fame. Maybe Kyle and Mike Shanahan will be the first father-son head coaches enshrined in Canton when it's all said and done. All right, time for Call of the Week, Conference Championship Edition. MDS, what do you have? Well, I'm going with that delayed 12 men on the field penalty that was called against the Titans after Tony Romo mentioned it on the CBS broadcast. And, you know, our, our NBC sports colleague, Terry McCauley, 
former NFL referee said he thinks what happened was the New York officiating office heard Tony Romo say that and quickly signaled to the referee, hey, you guys missed this one. We can't have Tony Romo pointing out something you missed like this. That They haven't run, you know, there's still time before the next play. Get it called. And uh, it shows once again, I think that that could be one of the most significant plays of this weekend if it spurs the competition committee to say, hey, that's a perfect example of how sometimes a guy sitting in a booth with a bird's eye view and a monitor in front of him sees the whole field better than any of the individual officials who are standing on the field. And that might spur the league to say, yep, it's time for the sky judge idea to come to fruition where we have another official who's in the stadium, in a booth, can see the whole field out the window of the booth and have a monitor right there in front of him, just like Tony Romo. And I think 12 on the field is an example of the type of call that it's actually easier to make from that perch than it is when you're standing on the field. So I thought that was very telling that it looked like Tony Romo saw it first. Terry McCauley said he thinks New York heard Tony Romo say it and decided we can't just, you know, it happened late in the game, probably wasn't going to matter, but they said, look, we, we can't just let Tony Romo point out this mistake and not fix it. And they did fix it. And I think it really points to how a sky judge could improve officiating in the NFL. I generally have a Machiavellian attitude as it relates to the misuse of the pipeline from 345 Park Avenue to the game sites. My attitude is do what you have to do to get it right. The problem is if you're not doing it consistently, some plays get fixed by the ability of Al Riveron or one of his lieutenants in the league office to talk in real time to the referee at a game site, and sometimes it doesn't. That said, I agree with you. The Sky Judge is feasible. The Sky Judge is viable. And I think the only reason the Sky Judge hasn't happened yet is the NFL sees it as an expense that they are refusing to justify because there isn't a revenue component that goes along with the money they would spend to have 17 extra officials who would be in this high-tech booth with every camera angle available. Not that monitors are expensive anymore, but they would have to set up for every game the opportunity to see all the angles and you want them up that you want it like, like you walked into a Buffalo wild wings. You want enough, uh, enough monitors in there where every camera from the truck is in that booth and you can see it all and you can quickly manipulate it to pull up what, you know, it would be a very high tech system that really isn't all that complicated, but it would not be cheap. And you need somebody who has the skill to operate it. And, and I think one of the concerns they use, and I think this is a, this is a phony argument. The idea that, the 17 sky judges wouldn't have consistency among them. Well, the 17 referees don't have consistency among them. The point is having a member of the crew who is in a different vantage point, who is in our vantage point, because the biggest problem for the NFL now when it comes to officiating, I've said this time and again, and I'm going to keep saying it until they acknowledge that it's accurate. The gap between what we see at home watching on TV and what the seven officials see when they are among the gladiators, primarily trying not to get trampled by said gladiators, you see the sport differently when you are full speed, naked eye, don't get killed, don't get maimed, try to figure out what's happening. You need to bridge the gap between that experience and what we see at home from the comfort and safety of our couch. That's what the Sky Judge can do. 
And I think it will go a long way toward fixing a lot of the things that the officials get criticized about. It shows that the NFL is trying its damnedest to get the calls as right as possible. So I agree with you. And this is a prime example of how it can work. And here's hoping they take that as the impetus to spend what they have to spend and do what they have to do to have a sky judge in every stadium who is empowered to talk to the referee and just like a member of the crew, not replay review, not oversight, not rock, paper, scissors, a member of the crew who can be trusted by the referee and says, hey, Phil, pick up that flag. Why? Trust me. I'll tell you later. Pick up that flag. It wasn't pass interference or it was or it wasn't holding or drop a flag. There was 12 guys on the field, whatever it may be. Having that perspective is critical to any officiating crew in today's NFL. Yeah, and look, we we just live in a different world now where tens of millions of fans are watching in high definition. They've all got DVRs where they can pause and rewind and say, wait a minute, did he just miss that call? And then they can upload a GIF of the missed call to Twitter and then people start retweeting it. And instantly the fans are in a position where they know all, uh, they know with a certainty that, yep, the official missed that one. And the officials need more help not missing those ones. And the the sky judge can be the help. And, and I agree. I think the owners are too focused on things like, well, that's, you know, we're going to have to have 17 sky judges. That's 17 more salaries to pay. We're going to have to equip the 31 stadiums with a booth for the sky judge and, you know, the, that that costs money and the ha- having the monitors there costs money. It, it It's worth the money. It's not that much money for a business the size of the NFL that the money should be the reason not to do it. I think there's no question that it, it ought to be worth the money to the 32 owners to, to spend what it costs to get this done right. Yeah, and uh, we'll see if they if they figure that out after the season when the replay review for pass interference is up for a fresh vote and they'll need at least 24 to keep that going. It's not a permanent rule change, and I think there's been enough problem with that rule, with that approach, that they need to find a different way. Sky Judge is the different way. And Rob Lowe could be the Sky Judge with his black trench coat, black T-shirt, and his NFL hat. The first time they've ever sold a black hat with an NFL logo was to Rob Lowe. He could be Sky Judge. Uh, definitely uh, looks the part. All right. Call of the week for me. And I don't want to bang this Shanahan drum excessively, but what we are seeing right now in the NFL is amazing that all the rules have been slanted toward passing the football. And Kyle Shanahan has cracked the code on how to put together a great running game because nobody else is running anymore. No one is teaching the run concepts the way they used to. No one is teaching the tackling of the running backs, the fighting through the blocks like they used to. And Kyle Shanahan showing his willingness early in the game, third and eight, scoreless, calling a trap play, a run play, and having it pop for a touchdown. And for me, when I saw that play, I knew in my heart, the Packers were not going to beat the 49ers. Now, look, I've had that feeling before, and it's been dead wrong, but it just felt like, man, the 49ers are going to overpower the Packers, and whatever Aaron Rodgers is able to do on offense is not going to matter. The 49ers are just going to keep coming and coming and coming with that running game. And that third and eight trap play was the precursor to eight passes thrown, making Jimmy Garoppolo the modern-day 
Bob Greasy, who had seven passes in Super Bowl eight, 11 passes in Super Bowl seven. I I, I want to see what the over under is for Super Bowl 54 on number of passes attempted by Jimmy Garoppolo. That will be one hell of a prop bet because I don't know. Is it 10 and a half? Is it 12 and a half? He had 19 against the Vikings, but it was almost like, you know, he had three close calls. One was intercepted against the Vikings by Eric Kendricks. Kendricks actually could have had two others. And there was another throw where the ball kind of squirted up in the air. And I think it was Kendrick Bourne who came out of nowhere to make the catch. Um, Kyle Shanahan realized, you know what? There's a lot less that can go wrong by running the football. So if we can run the ball, we're going to. And it may not be sexy. It may not be trendy. It may not be fun. But you know what's fun? Scoring touchdowns and winning games. And that Raheem Mostert run on third and eight, the trap play up the middle that popped wide open. And Chris Sims broke it down earlier today. And it was just beautiful how it all fell together perfectly. And the hole was there. And there goes Mostert. That's going to be something that the 49ers will continue to do, not just in the Super Bowl, but into 2020 until defenses are able to figure out how to stop it. And in today's NFL, I don't think there's enough guys, there's enough practice reps to craft guys who aren't already that way into thinking and believing that they'll just go throw themselves in front of that blocker and in front of that running back and, and incur the pain and potential injury of bringing that guy down. Yeah, and uh, I really found that sequence. It started with the Packers faced fourth and one at midfield and decided to punt. And then the 49ers just had a brilliant set of play calls, concluding with that trap play for the touchdown on third and eight. And I felt like that right there was Kyle Shanahan outcoaching Matt LaFleur. I thought LaFleur should have gone for it on that fourth and one. And when he didn't, Shanahan just had the ideal offense ready to make the Packers pay for it. And and that really set the tone for the whole game. And obviously, the game was never close. I mean, there was one brief moment in the fourth quarter where you're thinking, maybe the Packers are getting back into this thing. But really, the game was never close. And so when a game is never close, you can never point to one call that made the difference in the game. But... To me, that sequence between the Packers deciding to punt and then how how good of a, a, a series of plays the 49ers called leading up to that final touchdown, to, to me, that just set the tone for the whole rest of the game, the way the 49ers just outplayed the Packers. And it, it's going to be fun in the Super Bowl to see, are the 49ers willing to say, hey, Third and eight's a running down for us. We we get third and eight, no problem. We're running the ball. That that could make things very interesting and and, and make it make it a very different kind of matchup between these two teams than we are accustomed to seeing. You know, it's funny. Kyle Shanahan spoke yesterday at some length about the play calls at the end of Super Bowl Fifty One, the twenty eight to three debacle, and it was twenty eight twenty. The Falcons had the ball first and 10 on the New England 22 with four minutes and 30 seconds left in the game, 440, I believe. And uh, he, he was justifying the decision to pass on second and 10 because they weren't able to run the ball in the second half. And you don't want to get into run, run, pass formula in a situation like that where the defense knows what you're going to do. So he mixed it up. He had a pass play that he thought would work. The Patriots anticipated it. They ran a different coverage. It screwed things up and there was a sack. But... That all flowed from the inability to run the football. And it's almost like one of the lessons Kyle Shanahan learned in that spot wasn't simply 
keep the clock moving and don't call for a pass with four minutes and change left in the Super Bowl and an eight-point lead, it was, you better be damn sure you can run the ball. Let's run the ball. And it's not just the inside zone that was the staple of the Mike Shanahan offense and that Gary Kubiak still uses in Minnesota. They do a lot of other things, too. And, and you know, something – and we're all a product of our experiences, our successes, and our failures. And I think Kyle Shanahan has learned from his failures more than anyone else, and that has crafted this guy that, that now never relaxes, no matter how big the lead, and has a running attack that he can rely on so much that it marginalizes his passing attack. All right, those are our awards for the conference championship weekend. I want to lead into some questions, and this first question kind of dovetails from what we were just discussing. This comes from our good friend Tom Marshall, known on Twitter as A Red Zone Alk. Is anyone under more pressure to perform in the Super Bowl than Jimmy Garoppolo? That is something that Sims and I talked about earlier today regarding who's under more pressure to perform. And as we talked it through MDS, I think Patrick Mahomes is under more pressure than Garoppolo because who really expects anything from Garoppolo? Mahomes is the Kansas City offense. He runs it, he throws it, and if he doesn't get it done, nobody's getting it done. For Garoppolo, he could have a a Ben Roethlisberger in Super Bowl 40 type of a day where he throws a couple of picks and has under 200 passing yards and they'll still win the game, right? Because of the fact that the running game is what fuels it. So I don't think the pressure is on Jimmy Garoppolo nearly as much as we would think going into this game. Yeah, I would say that the 49ers offense is actually designed to take all the pressure off Jimmy Garoppolo and to make uh, Jimmy Garoppolo feel like he he doesn't need to do too much to to win the game, and so yeah, I would I would agree with you. I don't necessarily see him as the player who is under the most pressure um, because that that Forty ers offense he may throw the ball ten times. I, I I would bet he throws it more than eight. I, I think that game, uh, the NFC Championship game, kind of just laid out person perfectly for him not to throw the ball. I would bet he throws it more than he did in the NFC Championship game, but it wouldn't surprise me if he throws it less than 20 times. That would certainly not surprise me at all, maybe less than 15. So I don't necessarily see Jimmy Garoppolo having a lot of pressure because I think it'll be a game plan designed to keep him from feeling pressure. And here's the thing, too, and this is going to be the challenge for Kyle Shanahan. Can he spot that the Chiefs are selling out to stop the run before that first snap is called and will he audible to a play action pass or something that lets Garoppolo take advantage of it? Because if the chiefs defense decides they're putting everybody up at the line of scrimmage to try to try to figure out that, that running attack and knock the guy down before he gets very far, like they did against Derrick Henry. And there were moments where they were flooding that line of scrimmage. It was that, that defensive approach where you're either going to give up a touchdown or you're going to stop them. Either way, you're getting your offense back on the field because your offense is your moneymaker. It'll be interesting to see when Kyle Shanahan basically does the, the Rocky two switch back to left-handed. Will he flip that switch over to the passing game before he even knows that the running game is going to have trouble? Or will he see if the running game can succeed even if the Chiefs have sold out? And you know what? If the running game succeeds, even if the Chiefs have sold out, that's when it becomes like it was on Sunday against the 49ers. All right, next question. PFTP and Posse, what is the Super Bowl story that you're already tired of or will get tired of first? Well, I, I would have to say that it's something along the lines of Raheem Moster and the six teams that have already cut him because it's a great story, but I'm picturing that Super Bowl opening night, what they used to call media day on Monday night, 
And what happens is reporter goes up to a guy at a podium, yells one question, the guy answers it, and then that reporter leaves and goes, talks to someone else or starts writing his story or whatever. I'm picturing Raheem Mostert getting some version of, hey, can you name the six teams that cut you? Or how'd you feel getting cut by six different teams? I'm betting he gets that around 20 times on that Super Bowl opening night, and I'll be sick of it by Monday night. So I, I don't know if I'm tired of it yet, but I think by that Monday night when he keeps getting it, and I'm sure he'll be sick of it, I'll be sick of it too. See, I don't know that, and I agree with you, he'll get asked that question a bunch of different ways Monday night, but I don't see it becoming a centerpiece to the week because how many different angles can you have? How much more can be said than what he's already said about it? I think this whole Andy Reid trying to win a Super Bowl for the first time, that's going to be overplayed, and we're going to hear about that over and over again, and can he do it, and what does he do differently, and can he manage the clock properly? I I know we're going to be tired of that one by the time the Super Bowl rolls around, and and they're, they're obviously, we'll be tired of everything. We'll be ready for the game. Two weeks of buildup. By the time you get to the Thursday or Friday or even Tuesday or Wednesday of Super Bowl week, you're just ready to fast forward to Sunday and let's see the game and let's see who wins. All right, another one or two here. Nick Estrom, could Tony Romo be the next viable one to go from commentator to general manager, the opposite of John Lynch and the defense approach? So suggesting that Tony Romo would be a guy who comes in and fills up a team with offensive talent becoming a general manager after a few years as a broadcaster. MDS, I know what I think about this one. I'm going to let you go first. I don't think that's what Tony Romo wants to do with his life. I think his current job is easier than being a general manager. I don't think he really wants the grind of being a general manager. I don't think he wants to be at the senior bowl, working the practices, that kind of thing, uh, that, that aspect of the general manager job. Uh, I don't think there's a team that would pay him more to be a general manager than he's going to make on his next broadcasting contract. In fact, I I don't even know if there's a team that would pay him half of what he's going to make on his next broadcasting contract. Um, I don't think he is the guy who has the burning need to do it. I mean, you know, Tony Romo is the guy who wants a job that gives him time to golf. And I think he has more time to golf as a commentator than he would as a general manager. So add all those things up. No, I don't see that happening. I agree with you completely. I had someone who knows him tell me a year or so ago that this person wouldn't be surprised if Romo at some point just quits broadcasting. And it's amazing to think he would when you look at how much money he can make. But if he was just a little bit better as a golfer and could do it full time, he would do it. He doesn't need the money, even though the money is great and it's hard to walk away. I assume from 10 to 14 million a year, I've never had to make that decision. Uh, but uh, I, I think he wants to do the job with as little prep as possible. He's the guy who shows up for the test, doesn't study for it, and somehow gets a B plus or an A minus. This year, I noticed he's gotten more criticism and I've noticed more mistakes. And I've noticed some things that were just like, he should know that. So, how engaged is he really in the process how prepared is he for the moment how locked in is he for those three hours or is he just kind of trying to to bs his way through it but that tells me this isn't a guy who would go all in remember when dan marino took a job with the dolphins 15 16 years ago and quit after three weeks because he realized you have to actually work 
Like the job he has now with the team is more ceremonial. The job he had then was a John Elway type of a job. And he's like, screw this. I'm not putting in all these hours. And I think Tony Romo would never want to put in those kind of hours and never trade doing what he's doing now for less money and a hell of a lot more work. All right, next one. Sean Alvishire, do you think Xavier Rhodes making the Pro Bowl is the NFL just admitting that nobody cares about the Pro Bowl, MDS? Yeah, it, it gets a little ridiculous this time of year when, first of all, no one on the two Super Bowl teams can play. Then there are a lot of guys who are injured and can't play. And then there are a lot of guys who they could play, but they say, eh, you know, my ankle's a little stiff. I think I'm not going to risk it. A lot of players pull out of the Pro Bowl for all kinds of reasons. And then you reach that point where they're asking anyone to do it. They're asking the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th alternate to come play in the Pro Bowl. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it just shows how many players don't care. I don't know. They don't announce the exact order of the voting. So we don't know how many alternates had to have passed before they got to Xavier Rhodes, but it might have been a lot. There might be a lot in addition to the ones we do know about, the ones who either either can't play uh, because they're in the Super Bowl or um, publicly announced that they weren't playing because of an injury. We don't know how many others just said no thank you when they were called and asked to do it. So we don't know exactly where Xavier Rhodes ranks, but he's probably pretty far down there. Yeah, and Look, I think part of this also is the reputation factor where guys continue to draw votes even though people don't realize that they've slipped. The coaches and the teams, they know the 12 opponents they face every year. You have the teams in your division that you play twice, 12 or 13 teams that you see every year. And it may just be that when they did the voting, some of the coaches, some of the players, they put down Xavier Rhodes' name not realizing that he has dramatically fallen off of what he once was. And maybe the fans do some of that too. And, you know, it was a good year for the Vikings. So more fans likely voting for their favorite Vikings players. And, and yeah, we don't know how many guys said, no, I'm not going to the pro bowl before we got down to Xavier Rhodes as the replacement for Richard Sherman. But look, the, the, the pro bowl, the mere fact that people watch it is the only thing that saves it. If people weren't watching it, it would go away, but people watch it. I don't know who. I don't know many people who say I'm going to tune in and watch the Pro Bowl on a Sunday afternoon in January, but uh, they're going to keep playing it as long as uh, as folks uh, tune in to ABC, ESPN, and wherever else they can find the game. Let's do one more real quick before we go. There was one that caught my eye. Here it is. Mike Likes Dirt. Which team from the Final Four this year is most likely to miss the Final Four next year, accounting for roster construction, free agent contracts, cap, et cetera? MDS, who would you say, out of the Titans, the Packers, the Chiefs, and the 49ers, which team most likely to not make it to the Final Four next year? I would say the Packers. And as I was watching the NFC Championship game, I was kind of thinking, this is the last time we're going to see Aaron Rodgers this deep in the postseason. I think we may not see him again in a conference championship game and obviously therefore not in a Super Bowl either. I, I think that if you look at the Packers, although they significantly exceeded expectations this year, I'm not sure that they're built to maintain this level of success going forward. 
They've got a very expensive contract that they've committed to with Aaron Rodgers. I'm not convinced that he's going to play at a level commensurate with what they're paying him. So uh, I would vote the Packers as the team least likely to be back of the four that played this past weekend. You know, it's funny when Aaron Rodgers took to the podium after the loss to the 49ers, he had the look and demeanor of a guy who'd been to sea for the last three months and finally just came into port. But the words didn't match that kind of dejected facade. He was very optimistic. He said that the window's open. He said that one of these is going to go our way pretty soon. He said this year's special because football was fun again. And he rattled off the names of all the players who have been brought in by Brian Gutekunst to become leaders of the Packers. And he praised Matt LaFleur, the first-year head coach, for empowering the players to go out and lead and, and be accountable and take care of their business without being maybe micromanaged the way they've been in the past. And it, it made me think that maybe, you know, when you look at the Bears, like who really knows what the Bears are going to be next year? The Vikings could be on the brink of a decline. The Lions, they can never get out of their own way. And I, I just, I, I think that the Titans are more likely to not get back. When you look at how the Titans almost didn't even get in, right? They were the sixth seed in the AFC. They had to win against a Texans team that wasn't playing for anything in week 17. I don't know what's going to happen with Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. I don't know that Derrick Henry is going to be the same guy once he gets paid. I don't know that Ryan Tannehill is going to stay healthy for all of a season. It worked this year. It doesn't mean it's going to work next year. And they've got some big decisions to make. And they've got the Colts, the Jaguars, and the Texans in their division. I mean, really, they were the only team in the Final Four that didn't win their division. And I don't know that I would pick them to win the division next year just because they won a couple of playoff games. So I think the Titans are going to have the hardest part getting back, not because they can't win in January, but maybe they won't win enough games from September to December to get themselves to January MDS. Yeah, and the Titans are a very interesting team because we don't know, I think more than any of the other top teams in this year's postseason, we don't know how much of that personnel is going to be back in the 2020 season. We don't we don't know what's going to happen with Ryan Tannehill, with Derrick Henry. It, it could be a, a team that looks quite a bit different in 2020. Yeah, and that is a reality for a lot of teams. You don't have guys who will definitely be back. You'll have decisions made. Even guys that you think contractually are safe, maybe they find somebody else that can do the job cheaper, better, younger, healthier, and teams change dramatically from one year to the next. And really, when you close the book on a given season for a team, that's it. I mean, it's like a snowflake. It used to be in the 70s, teams rarely change. Now every year is its own distinct entity for every team, and there will be some changes, and that's going to be a huge factor. Everything that happens throughout the offseason, free agency, trades, guys getting cut, the draft, et cetera, will go a long way towards shaping who does what in 2020. All right, that's it for the Tuesday edition of PFTPM Conference Championship Awards. We'll, I don't know what we're going to do next week, MDS, because you know what a, what a, a, a blender is. It is down in Florida. Maybe we'll find some time to get together and tape a podcast on Tuesday. Maybe we won't. There won't be any awards for the Pro Bowl, as we've already established. At a minimum, two weeks from now, we'll get together and talk Pro Bowl, or Super Bowl, not Pro Bowl, Super Bowl awards, even though it will be even harder to come up with for each. Everybody, enjoy Super Bowl week. Enjoy the week where things are kind of quiet. It's a few more days before the ramping up really begins. We'll be covering the Super Bowl from every angle possible. We'll all be down there for Super Bowl week in Miami with a lot of new content. Thanks as always for your support and we'll talk to you again real soon.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.